I want to start out uh, by saying thanks to Jeff uh, Coleman. And we, uh, I know he's going to pick us up on the Internet. And for those of you who know him on the Internet, he's on his way to Kansas City, he might, or Kansas. He may still, he may be there already. So he took the last two Sundays so that I could pretend that I was 30 years old and could frame a building. So I appreciate that very much. Okay, here we go. Hi, Jeffy. Here we go. June 6, 2010. Lecture discussion number one. Yay! You came out on a warm summer day and you hear number one on the book of Romans. For those of you who think I never, ever do anything in the New Testament. But here we are, and obviously this is the beginning of a new series, and in this case it's going to be Romans generally considered to be the preeminent doctrinal work in all of the New Testament by the majority of scholars, and, and I do not subscribe to that view. I don't believe that's the case. I submit that the Gospel of John is the preeminent doctrinal work in all of the New Testament, frankly, in all of Scripture, for that matter, because of its emphasis on what? What does John do? Deity of Christ. If you don't have that, no other Bible is going to make sense, and yes, I'm sorry, another Bible book is going to make sense to you if you fail at the deity of Christ. And yes, I got a haircut. I got a haircut because Mark and I always get a haircut on the same day, don't we? Yes, we do. All of you look at me and say, he has a bad haircut. Until when? Until you see Mark. And then I look pretty good. Now we both have a good haircut. Okay. Where am I? Deity of Christ. That's what separates John out of all the other books, frankly. But the book of Romans is certainly greatly significant in that it does something that is critical. It does what? What is the purpose or what is the focus? What is the theme of the book of Romans? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? It's salvation by grace. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it's also uh, somewhat of a derivative. It's a direct result of Christ's Godhood. It is proof, if you will, uh, that Christ is God. Because if Christ is God, then salvation is by grace. That's how it works. If salvation is by grace, Christ is God. If you fail if Christ is God, you will not have salvation by grace. It's not possible. If you say salvation by grace, then you are saying that Christ is God. That's how they fit together, and that's why they stand side by side. It's proof, as I said, and it stands with the Gospel of John as evidence as to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'll reword it really fast, just in case I got that through. I'm sorry, let's reword it just so... In case I went too fast. Salvation by grace alone, through faith, faith and belief in Christ alone, demands that Jesus Christ is creator God in the flesh. So that's how Romans is a natural extension of the gospel of John. Pardon me? Yeah, if and only. Yes, indeed. He said it sounds like geometry. Well, yeah, absolutely it does. The Bible is a math book. So if you have nothing else in your doctrine but Jesus Christ is God, and that, that means that salvation has to be by grace. Salvation by grace and grace alone proves that Jesus Christ is God. Then you're fine. I'm happy. I'm going to get credit for you, and everything will work. My beatings will be fewer. So that's what I'm trying to do. If nothing else, I get there. Uh, life is good for me when it's time for me to stand up. 
But Romans does a whole bunch of other things. Romans sends us headlong into the creation-evolution debate. It is amazing what it does, what it calls the invisible attributes of God. And then it says this about them in Romans 1.20. The invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen. Babies are absolutely allowed to do whatever they want in this congregation. Absolutely. In fact, probably the best sermons I ever had were unheard because babies screamed, and that's great. I call that God protecting me. Let me repeat. Let me give it to you again. The invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen, that seems to be what? I mean, how can something be invisible and clearly seen? And that's the point of Romans. It proves that the invisible God is clearly seen. The, and therefore, once you realize that the invisible is clearly seen, the, the conclusion that Romans gives you immediately is that mankind, therefore, is without excuse. And what's the obvious question? What's his excuse? Powerful and solemn are the implications of Romans 1.20. The invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen, and therefore mankind is without excuse. You have no excuse. You're, I'm going to miss Jeffy because he was an attorney, and I told him, listen, every time you speak a sermon, wherever you go, because he intends to be a pastor, you start out with, I'm an attorney, and then 15 attorney jokes. It's just automatic what he gets to do, and nobody can criticize him for it. He did say, think that that might offend the attorneys in the church service, and I naturally pointed out that there wouldn't be any attorneys in the church service except for him. Right? So that gives him free license to blast away. But anyway, he does a wonderful job of explaining things in a legal sense because he knows the Bible is two things. It's a math book, and it's what else? It's a law book. And he has one of them covered. If you are a mathematical legal person, you've got it. The Bible will make sense to you. A lot of things make sense to uh, Jeffy because of that legal thing. A lot of things uh, make sense to uh, Troy because of the math. And it's very, very important that you understand that. The evidence is given by God. Because why? You're coming to a trial and you're not going to have a defense attorney. You have no defense. You're coming to a trial. You have no excuse because the invisible is made visible. It's a law procedure. All of you soon, very soon, sooner than we think in my belief. I'll talk about that in a minute. Because why am I going to talk about sooner than you think? Turkey is going to run the Israeli blockade, baby. It's sooner than you think. If Turkey runs the Israeli blockade, wow. Everything you think is important, poof, as soon as that happens. There's no kids here. But if you don't have your driver's license, you ain't getting one if Turkey runs the blockade. You think about buying a house, painting your fence, that Middle East goes... And it goes soon. Buy food. I'm not trying to scare you. Okay, I am a little bit. Pay attention. You're supposed to be the wise ones. Pay attention to the fact that Turkey is going to run that blockade with the Turkish Navy. What do you think will happen when the Turkish Navy runs that? What's going to happen? That's way up here, by the way. I have a map to draw for you later. This is really geography lesson as much as it is Romans. But pay attention. 
the evidences given by God for your trial that are coming, the things that are made and his eternal power that sustains the things that are made. That's what he says in Romans. I have made things and I sustain things and the invisible me is made visible by the things that I have made and the power that I am using to keep those things sustained. Colossians 1.17 says this, In Jesus Christ all things consist, which means all things are held together by Him. He holds all things. He's who? He's God. John. He's God. He's God. He's God. Romans. Salvation is by grace, grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Christ consists, holds all things together, and you can figure out that the invisible God is there by paying attention to the created things that he made, the matter and the energy. Remember, the created order, time, space, matter, and energy. He's saying, pay attention to matter and energy, you'll find me. And you have no excuse if you don't. So there at your trial, you're big trouble. Rejection of this fundamental truth results, he says in Romans 1.21 on, results in the darkening of the heart and you have a futile, foolish life existence and you fail. Everything you do fails. So, any study of Roman ultimately ends or finds, I'm sorry, ultimately finds quantum physics and astronomy. Why astronomy? Because he made things. How much stuff did he make? You have to figure out what he made and why he made it, right? So, quantum physics and astronomy. That's where we're headed when you study Romans. And you knew they had to come up again. You were waiting for them to rear up and do what they do. So, back we are to time dilation. Why do I have to study time dilation when I'm studying astronomy? What is time dilation? It's really simple. It's... it's, Time dilation is the is simply the impact that velocity and gravity have on time. What impact does velocity and gravity have on time? Why do you need to know? Because I got all this stuff out there. How much stuff is out there? When I say out there, where do I mean? Into void one, as opposed to Void zero. Out in void one, which is what? The universe. Who paid attention at all when I did that? A couple weeks ago, right? Okay, maybe it was a year ago. So you all have an excuse, sort of. I'll go back and see the pictures and see who was here. Outer space, the universe, how much stuff is out there? It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, and we can see it now because we have the technology to see it. And that requires that we understand that gravity and velocity impacts time. What does gravity and velocity do to time? Time is not rigid. It is not constant. Okay, It can be affected. Time flows at different rates from different points of reference. What do we call that? We call that the relativity of time. Plus, of course, you have entropy's relationship to time. You, time can stop. Time can end. If I had maximum entropy, as you remember, I have no way to measure time because I have total randomness. And that's what entropy is, is the, is the uh, march towards randomness. If I reached total, complete random, I have no time. If I am traveling at the speed of light, how much time is there? 
Hey, I can affect time by velocity. I can affect time by gravity. When time goes by a huge gravitational force, it's true. If I put an atomic clock on top of a mountain or an atomic clock up against the earth, they're going to read a different time. It's negligible. But they can figure it out now. They know that gravity affects time. If I'm running by, if time is going by, or light is going by, a huge gravitational source, what happens to both of them? They're affected by it. You need to know that time is not rigid. And so back we go to entanglement and the cosmic microwave radiation because cosmic microwave radiation is proof that the temperature of the universe is uniform and you need to know that the temperature of the universe is uniform because we're going to ultimately talk about how is it that we see all this stuff because time doesn't seem to... We don't seem to have enough time in order to see the distant starlight. So we have all these different theories, and cosmic microwave radiation proves that we have uniform temperature. That's a big deal, because how did I get uniform temperature in all the universe, as big as it is? Because I shouldn't have enough time. How do I transfer energy? Let's just talk about that really fast. If I put an ice cube into a cup of coffee, what happens to the ice cube if the coffee is hot? It melts. What's it doing? It's transferring its energy to the coffee. What's happening to the coffee? It cools. That's a transfer of energy. Eventually, I end up in an equalization situation where the ice no longer melts because it's at the same temperature as the coffee. How do I get uniform temperature in the entire universe? The only way I can do that is through exchange energy. How do I get exchanging of energy? The fastest way I can do it is with light. Okay, now i got what's called the horizon problem, because I don't have fast enough light to get the energy from one end of the universe to the other. Even if I accept the 20 trillion gazillion years they say the universe is, not enough time. It's called the horizon problem. So they have another theory called inflation. They keep making theories. I was telling Bill this the other day. It's a famous thing. I'll go ahead and repeat it for you. Bill, you can't laugh. Anybody else I told you can't laugh either. This is only for the people that have never heard. It's very famous. been around a long time. I'm stealing it. As a psychiatrist, it actually is a psychological condition. A man came to him and said that he was dead. And the psychiatrist said, it's not really a joke, but it ends up being a joke. It was a serious situation. The psychiatrist went about trying to prove to this man who was convinced that he was dead, that he was alive. Finally, he thought, he asked him this question, back and forth, arguing over whether or not you're dead or alive. And the man that thought he was dead was convinced that he was dead and had all kinds of excuses and ways to, to get around any argument that the psychiatrist could throw at him. And finally, the psychiatrist said, do dead men bleed? And the man said, no. Psychiatrist figured he had him trapped. And so what did he do? He took out a pen and he pricked his finger and there's blood on the table. And so the psychiatrist said, dead men don't bleed. And you're bleeding. What is the conclusion? And the man said, I was wrong. Dead men do bleed. And that's where we are in the evolution debate. It doesn't matter. I can prove to you that you can't have uniform temperature through the universe, and all they do is come up with a new theory. It's called inflation. So we have to deal with what's called the inflation theory with regard to the horizon problem. And we have to have, talk about galactocentricity. What if the Milky Way is the center galaxy in all of the universe? Then we have what's called a gravitational well and how that affects time. If I have a gravitational well... Gravity affects time. Big deal. 
which is another way, by the way, of asking about the size of the universe and the number of galaxies. Here's the question. How many galaxies are there in the universe? How big is the Milky Way galaxy? Let's just start there. We're in that, right? It's not a candy bar. That's the mounds. Oh, by the way, that was very clever. Your candy bars at the uh, women's thing. You're now a legend in this church. I should tell people what you did. Why did I think of mounds? And never mind. You'll have to explain. Anybody wants to know, ask Misty. Misty, what it was that she was doing. You won that, didn't you, dear? Uh, <laughs> okay. Anyway, that was well-received, brilliantly conceived. Wonderful job. For those of you who got to go to Travis and Joy's um, baby thingy. Ah, where was I? Milky Way is not a candy bar. Yes, it is. How big is the Milky Way? It's really big. How big is it? Start to, how many stars are in the Milky Way? It's one galaxy. How many galaxies do the secular uh, uh, astronomers, secular evolutionists... By the way, what Bible book are we studying right now? Romans. Keep that in mind. The unseen evidence are clearly seen. The invisible is clearly seen. How many galaxies do the secular astronomers say there are? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? What? Infinite. Infinite galaxies. I say no. I say there's a finite number of galaxies. But they argue with me. They say there's infinite trillions. Trillions of galaxies in trillions of multi-universes now. We're not just one universe. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of universes and trillions and trillions and trillions of galaxies. And inside every galaxy is how many stars? Trillions of stars. That's the secular astronomy right now. Infinite number of galaxies. So we have to ask that question. Is there a finite number of galaxies? I say yes. They say no. Which means what? Once again, they're wrong. That's right. Anyway, Romans, the book of Romans, forces discussion on these and other questions and topics, mostly because of the doctrine of salvation by grace. That's why we've got to talk about it. Salvation by grace makes you talk about the evidence at your trial or someone's trial. Everyone has a trial. Some, the saved are tried. They do not lose their salvation. That's what Romans says. The unsaved without salvation have no excuse because of the created stuff. That's where we're headed here. And if you don't understand salvation by grace, and you don't understand that Jesus Christ is God, and you don't understand the, the evidence of the created realm, and you don't understand the energy that holds it together, then God gives up on you. That's what he says in Romans. He gives up on you to um, your own lusts because you're not thankful. And then you become debased. You have a debased mind and you become a hater of God and a proud boaster, unloving, violent inventor of evil things and you don't know anything. You're undiscerning. That is Romans 1, through 32. And he gives up on you, on humanity, when that's where you go. That's what Romans says. And we'll read it later. It's powerful. And perhaps if you've studied Romans before, you may have already noticed that I'm not going to approach it the same way as most people do. If you go to one of the local Bible studies that are offered here in town and, and go to the study on Romans, I doubt very much that you will talk about time dilation there. 
our gravitational wells or cosmic microwave background radiation. And that's not a big shock to you, I know. But don't presuppose, I don't want you to think, I don't want you to, to, to go, hey, I've done Romans before, it's a sunny day, I don't have to go. You do have to go. This is not going to be something I believe you've ever heard. The, the traditional template of Romans won't be repeated here. So I hope you hang in there. How long will it take to go through Romans? It's 16 chapters. What do you think? Yeah, it took me... Uh, I, did I ever finish Ezekiel? I was on four years, I think, with Ezekiel. I took a year just to go through Genesis 15, right? It's going to take a while. So, the Holy Spirit directed Paul, the Apostle Paul, to write this book. And he references in this book, he starts out with David. Some will say he starts out with Abraham, but he doesn't. He starts out with David. He makes a David reference, then an Abraham reference, then another David reference, then Adam, Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, and Pharaoh. Did he go in order? David, Abraham, David. Adam, Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, and Pharaoh. That's his order. That's not the chronological order. So what's the obvious question right off the bat? Why this order? What, is, what do all of these people have in common? If you skip the first David, Abraham, David, Adam, Sarah, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, Pharaoh. What is he building to? What is he trying to teach with each one of those Old Testament references? We're going to have to find them. We're going to have to figure out which part of each one of those persons is a piece that Paul is putting in his book of Romans. Okay, so obvious question, why these, why this order, what connects them, why does it end with, who does it end with? Pharaoh, why does it end with Pharaoh? What is the most significant thing about Pharaoh? He got unbelievable proofs given to him, didn't he? Unbelievable proofs. How did it work out? And we have this hardening of the heart issue. Remember that? And I, we're going to have to go back to that because we have the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart six times. And I've talked about how God hardens your heart before. I'll do it again with hopefully not falling down. God is here. I'm representing his location, not him. And when he's hardening his, your heart, this is what he's doing to you. So when you step away from God, he eventually does what? He steps away from you. That's what Romans is going to tell us here when we get to the reading part of it. There's a place that comes when you give up on the evidences that he's given you and you give up on the deity of Christ, then he does ultimately step away and give up on you. And you become the paste and undiscerning. And there's the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh runs to his death in, an, in the most illogical event may be in Scripture. He's going to chase the Jews to the Red Sea where he thinks he has them trapped. And what's he going to do to them there? He thinks he's not only got them trapped, but he thinks he can kill them. What is overhead? The pillar of cloud. Think Star Wars if you want. Over the top of the Jews. Think the Starship Enterprise if you want. And you're not even close. 
You have the most powerful force ever seen. You have God in the pillar of cloud. Ezekiel tells you who's in there, who's sitting up there, what's in that pillar of cloud. It's extraordinary. There's four cherubim there. There's a throne there. And who's on the throne? Christ is on the throne. And you're going to do what? Attack the Jews? You've got them trapped? He just killed all the firstborn, all your cattle. He spread bugs up to your neck. He turned it black. And you're going to attack that? What's the matter with you? How stupid can you be? And that is the lesson of what? Romans. You can be very stupid. You have the capacity to be incredibly stupid. Ask your neighbor. They'll tell you. I'm glad some of you laughed. Okay? That's why he ends with Pharaoh. That's the first one. Also, we would expect a Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12 reference, wouldn't we? Because that's the eighth mystery, and Paul really cares about the eighth mystery. We've just finished the eighth mystery. That's the mystery of the man of sin. That's the Antichrist. That's the evil thing. That's the lie. I would expect that to show up in Romans, and it does. Very much so, it does. The subject of the eighth mystery is in chapter one. That is not a surprise because Paul was very much aware of the person that is the Antichrist. Now, a couple of things that are important. We always call the Apostle Paul the what? The Apostle Paul. I gave you kind of a hint there. Okay. Okay, shoot. But what's his real name? What's his Hebrew name? Saul. I want you to start thinking about his name being Saul. Now, when I say Saul to you, you immediately say who back to me. You say King Saul, the first king of Israel. And the first king of Israel, by the way, was a beautiful man. Yeah, that's true. The first king is kind of glory, but the first one that Israel, the one that Israel wanted was this beautiful, tall, powerful man named Saul. The Apostle Saul, if you will, is named for him. And they end up in a contrast and a comparison. Right off the bat, right off the bat, Saul, the Apostle, I'll just put Apostle up here so you can see, and here's King. Right off the bat, you, you know one thing is in both columns, isn't it? What's in both columns right off the bat? What do these two have in column? This, by the way, is a beautiful, powerful, tall man. This is a tiny, little, ugly man. He even describes himself that way. We'll get to that pretty soon. He has that, in, he has that by the way, in common with Samson. Samson and, and Saul were probably less than five feet tall and weighed less than a hundred pounds. That's what made Samson so extraordinary. If you've never heard me do that lecture, you can buy it uh, for, what do we charge for it? We don't charge for it. Hey, just see Lori or Jane. But right off the bat, I have King Saul and Apostle Saul. What is the one characteristic about both of them that leaps out to mind that they both have? What's the first thing they're known for? Murder. Absolutely right. Both were extraordinary murderers. We're talking powerful, violent evil killers, both men. This man killed the Gibeonites. That was a big problem. We've got to go back and deal with the Gibeonites. I kind of like to think of us as the Gibeonites because we're hiding in a church. Nobody knows we're here. Occasionally we do some work. This guy killed who? 
He killed the Jewish Christians. Okay? It turns out that both of them killed what? Christians. Both of them did. It's a wonderful place to start. Right off the bat, Paul is not physically impressive, though Saul was. 2 Corinthians 10.10 and Galatians 4.14. And immediately we should begin this differences and and, and comparisons between the two Sauls. Okay? And and then we should know that... uh, Paul constantly says this, to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile. So Saul, after he killed Jewish Christians, became an apostle to the Gentiles. The King Saul, however, killed Jewish, uh, non-Jewish Christians. I'm sorry. So Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And you see this relationship start to develop. Okay, second thing you need to know. Saul Paul, which is what I'll start calling him. Saul Paul. Saul Paul spent three years, Galatians 1, 17 through 18, being taught. Who taught him? Three years before he goes into the ministry. Three years before he teaches anybody else. He is taught by somebody. Obvious question. Who taught him? It is a face-to-face conversation. Paul, after he is saved on the Damascus Road, we'll have to cover that. And because he is the writer of Romans, he's also the writer of Hebrews. Nobody agrees with me there. Okay, a couple of people do, so i only got a couple of people that like me. But right off the bat, you need to know that he wrote Romans and he wrote Hebrews. And, the, and it's important because of who taught him. Who taught Paul? Jesus Christ taught him face to face for three years. That's what Galatians 1.17 through 18, Galatians 1.11 says. And third, this extraordinary doctrinal epistle written by the Apostle Paul Saul is delivered to the Church of Rome, Romans 16.1, by somebody. Who was that? Somebody took this letter because he couldn't go. God didn't want him to go. There's a lot of reasons for that. You remember, he tries to go before. He's shipwrecked all over the place. It's a difficult time getting to Rome. In any event, he is not allowed to get to Rome, and I believe he's not allowed to get to Rome because he has to write this book. And this book is the doctrinal bookend, if you will, to the book of John. And he has somebody deliver it. And that person had great responsibility, and that person had to explain the truths and the doctrines that are contained in the book of Romans, the doctrine of salvation by by grace alone in Christ alone. That's very significant. It's often overlooked with respect to the book of Romans. Okay? Who did he give the book to? Do you know? Phoebe. That's a funny name for a man, isn't it? Because it's not a man. He gives the book of Romans and the responsibility to explain this great truth, this incredible doctrine. He gives it to a woman and she takes it to the church of Rome and explains it to the Romans. So you women who do not understand doctrine, you have no excuse. You've got to know. Okay, before we start Romans this morning, I wrote here, huh? I want to address some current events. I have to. And as you heard me start out, the Turkish Navy is threatening to sail into Gaza ports directly and resupply Hamas with weapons. That's what the Turkish Navy is wanting to do. And if they did that, 
that would bring the Israeli Navy out to fortify their blockade, and very quickly war could result. And if that happens, folks, we are where in the Bible now? We are in Ezekiel 38, boys and girls, and that is a big deal. And Ezekiel 38 is not a tribulational event. It is a pre-tribulational event. But if we get to see Ezekiel 38, guess what? Come early next week. There won't be any parking. Bring your own chair. It's going to be very, very scary and very, very exciting if the Turks run that blockade and we start Ezekiel 38. See, also be aware that the United Nations is attempting to pressure Israel to do something. What are they wanting them to do, do you know? Paying attention to this? They want the UN inspectors to come in and do something. Do what? The IAED inspect for nuclear weapons. Because most people believe the Israel nation has 200 nuclear warheads. And so they're expecting the, uh, they're expecting the nation of Israel to allow those UN inspectors to come in and verify that nuclear arsenal with the ultimate purpose of making the Middle East a supposed nuclear-free zone. So if Israel gives up their nuclear weapons, what will happen in that area? What will happen? Who has nuclear weapons? If Israel were to give up theirs, who would have them? Iran would have them. Okay? That's the purpose of this, a supposed nuclear-free zone. In other words, they're going to require Israel to eliminate its nuclear weapons. And why would they do that? What's the agenda here? What's the purpose? Let's just face this about the United Nations. There is no organization more corrupt, more anti-Semitic, more anti-Israel, more hating of the Jews than the United Nations. It exists primarily to seek the extermination of the Jews, and that is not arguable, and that is not new. That is what they're doing, and that is not a surprise to you. And what's caused this sudden alarm, though, is Turkey's seemingly sudden entrance into this fight, because Turkey has not heretofore seemed to be involved in this. But you shouldn't be surprised. You would expect Turkey to come, wouldn't you? They should come. How come they should come? Because that's the great prophecy of Ezekiel 38. Let me give it to you as quickly as I can. (coughs) Rosh is coming to attack Israel. Who is Rosh? That's Russia. And it tells you, it gives you two cities, Mishesh and Tubal. Those today are called Tobolsk and Moscow. Ezekiel 38 says Russia, Moscow, Tobolsk are coming to attack Israel from the north. And the king of Russia will lead this, lead this confederacy. And then Persia will come. Who is Persia? That's Iran, absolutely. In fact, it's, this has happened to those of you who lost who watch television, that is how you spell Iran. What did I write on the board there? Aryan, right? They are the Aryan people. Who thought he was an Aryan right off the top of your head? Hitler thought he was an Aryan. Was he? Probably not. You can make a case there's the Caucasus Mountains where we get Caucasia. There's, there's a possibility that you could make a case. 
But the real reason that he wanted to be Arian was because he hated Jews, wanted to kill Jews. Right, then I have Cush, and I'll get through all of these, and Put. Some will add Lub in here. Not all do that. Gomer and Togamar. Got a Togamar. Okay? That is the confederacy that is coming. Libya is still called, still called Lub today. Put is Somalia. Okay, we still have some debate over who Kush is, so I'm not going to identify them so much today. There's a lot of debate, and we have some debate over uh, Gomer. But most people will say that Gomer and Togoma, this is Armenia, and Gomer is Germany and France. So... Ezekiel 38 says, just at almost the end of the age of the Gentiles, there's going to be a huge war, and leading this war will be Russia. They're going to be lured into attacking Israel. And on their side, Rosh, Mishash, Tobolsk, that, by the way, includes Russia and Turkey. On Russia's side will be Turkey, and they will lead this invasionary force that comes after Israel. That's going to happen. So just to give you a little bit of an idea, Turkey is here, for example. Over here is Israel, right? Pretty close. Syria is in between. Here's Russia up here. It, it actually feeds down in through Armenia. I know my map looks kind of silly. Over here I have, uh, I've got uh, Jordan. And here's the Gaza Strip. Here's the Israeli blockade. The Turkish Navy, this is the Mediterranean Sea. The Turkish Navy is going to run that blockade. If that happens, what chance does the Turkish Navy have? None. What does the Israelis have? F-22s, baby. Cruise missiles. They're going to blow those Turkish ships out of the water. Now, what does Turkey want? Why would they do it? See, if we are close to Ezekiel 38, then something's got to provoke a war. We've got to have a war. And if we do have a war, if we have Ezekiel 38... Everybody get a wood stove. Because Russia will come through Georgia, Armenia, see? Russia will come through Armenia and Georgia. By the way, who's in Georgia? Who's running Georgia? There's a lot of conflict in Georgia. Who's in Georgia? What religious group? Islams. Who's in France? Islams. Number one birth name in the uh, nation of uh, Great Britain, Muhammad. Europe is becoming Islam. France is already supplying nuclear information and technology to who? To Iran. That's already happening. When we had the Gulf War, something fascinating occurred. We had the United States and Great Britain and Australia, what's called the nations of Tarshish, the young lions and the lion of Tarshish, up against France, Russia, and Germany. 
Never happened before over Iraq. Okay, where's Iraq? Iraq's right here, right? Here's Iran. Here's Saudi Arabia. Here's Egypt. Okay, here's Somalia, Ethiopia, Yemen, Oman. I know it's a geography lesson, right? And that's exactly how the map looks if you look it up. Just like that. Okay? But these nations are going to attack. But notice who's missing. Iraq is not in here. Iraq is the capital city of the Antichrist to the north of Iraq up against Turkey. I don't quite have it right. Uh, is the Kurdish or Assyria. Okay? And they're not in this configuration. Because what happens to this army? What happens? Ezekiel 38 describes a pulling down of Russia by God. Russia sees an opportunity. They have such hatred, a long-held hatred of the Jews. They want to kill Jews. You go back to Stalin, he killed millions and millions, more than Hitler did. Okay? And Ezekiel 38 describes a pulling down of Russia by God. Russia's hatred is exposed of the Jews. They see an opportunity. They see the exact same thing as who? As the Pharaoh did. Here we go again. The king of Russia has the same scenario as the Pharaoh. Same one. Israel cannot defend itself. Israel is trapped. Israel is weak. The uh, young lions of Tarshish, by the way, that would be the United States and Australia. We don't interfere. We protest. Oh, you shouldn't attack Israel. We have no interest in defending Israel. Is it possible that this country could reach a place where the uh, government has no interest in defending Israel? Well, it's happened. Happened in your lifetime. You can make the case for Carter. He was very much an anti-Semite, but not like we've got now. Sorry if I'm getting political. I'm looking around. I've got no visitors. She ate food and left. Yeah. So we have an anti-Israel government, not nation, government. And if Russia sees an opportunity to attack, would the United States intervene? Would, would Australia intervene? Would Great Britain intervene? The Bible says no. And this army comes down. You have to know what causes this confederacy to swarm. It wants to rid the world of the Jews. It says for spoil. It comes to get spoiled. The Jews have something. I'm waiting for the Jews to have something that nobody else has got. Take a look sometime for fun and look at how many Nobel Prizes the nation of Israel has won in physics and math and all the sciences and agriculture and what they have. They're going to have something, and when they've got it, Russia's going to want it, and the United States is not going to defend them. This confederacy is going to come because I have a war over something that's caused, and boom. And what happens to this army, this swarming army that comes down? It is destroyed by God. Rocks, fire, earthquake, plagues. Rain, sulfur, and no one intervenes, and God does, so that Israel knows that God is def defending them. That is the pre-tribulational event, and I believe it could happen in your lifetime, or I wouldn't brought it up. Okay, going to close really fast with Romans here, real quick. But I had to do that. The chances, if you're under the age of 30, the chances that you don't see Ezekiel 38, in my opinion, are nil. 
Okay, I'm going to start out reading the end of Romans. So let's go to Romans 16. Because here's what Saul says, the Apostle Saul. Now I urge you, brethren, this is at the end of his book. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. In other words, this is a book on doctrine. I want you to pay attention to people who don't believe this and who try to divide you, who try to have a different doctrine, who try to teach you something else other than what I'm teaching you in the book of Romans. Pay attention to those people. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those are such who do, who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Of the simple. And who do we call these fat people who have smooth words and flattering speech and deceiving the hearts of the simple? Televangelists. I'm only half kidding about that. Pay attention to somebody who, the reason that they do this, they deceive the simple. What doctrine do they teach that fools the simple? They say to you that you have to have what? Your salvation is not by grace. You have got to do something to be saved. What is it that they say you have to do? You have to give them money. And then you have to do something else. And they fool, what is it called? Let me read again. By smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the stupid Christians. That's what he's saying. The simple. How long are you going to fall for this? This is ridiculous. Don't avoid people who try to teach you salvation by any other means. Avoid them. Let's just talk about the cult. All the cults. I don't care if it's Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't care if it's the Mormons. They're all a law. They have Christ around there somewhere. But they say he's not God and that the only way you can be saved is be obedient to our rules. And one of our rules is give me money. Pay attention to those people. It's a trick. It is simple. If you fall for it, you have no doctrinal understanding. And it's such a shame. I'll say to you right now, of the hundred churches in this Anchorage Bowl, probably 200, might be more than that, we're the 67th largest city, the, the salvation by grace and grace alone that is consistent with what the book of Romans says is the distinct minority, not even, not even 5% of all the churches in town. Okay. If you have a works-based salvation, you must, you must include teaching that Jesus Christ is not God. If you are works-based, you will always, every one of them will always destroy the Godhood of Christ. Now, they can't do it, but they will, they will say they've done it. That's why the first question I always ask the Jehovah's Witnesses is, is Jesus Christ God? And the first answer they always give me is no. And yet they have huge churches. They have a much better buffet. Okay, Romans 1.18. Here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you are suppressing the truth of who Christ is and how salvation is, then he calls that unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Or his invisible are clearly seen. Attributes isn't in the text. Being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. You heard me refer to this. He's saying, you can tell I'm here by looking at what's around you and how it works and how it stays together. All you got to do is pay a little bit of attention. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their hearts and in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to their uncleanness. God gave up on them gave them up to their uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God? Who's the truth of God? Jesus Christ is the truth of God. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie? Who's the lie? There you go. There's the eighth mystery right there, isn't it? And worshipped and served the creature, the beast, if you will rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women, women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committed, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not, in other words, by the way, so you know, understand that, salvation is hidden in, inside the marriage ordinance, and you have to understand that. And when you, you disrupt the marriage ordinance, you are attacking salvation. Hebrew betrothal system. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God and those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I'm just going to read the first part of chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, old man. <coughs> so, that's Romans. How happy is it? It's not happy. Now ask this question. There's billions and billions of galaxies. I'll give them that. I think there's a finite number, but there's billions of them. Why did he make so much? Because he could have done what? What do we need? 
By the way, how much life is on any of those? I'll help you. None. Huh? Yeah. There's no life except here. Why is there no life but here? And if there is no life but here, then the obvious question, what's he need? He needs the sun, okay? He needs the earth. What else he need? Moon would be nice. That's all he needs. Why is it that, that he didn't just stop there? Why is it that he made, and we'll get, I'll bring you the DVDs and the, and the pictures. It's extraordinary. He made this incredible amount of stuff. It's amazing. It's infinite. Why did he do it? All he needs is three things. And then nothing. We could have had the earth, the sun, and the moon surrounded by void one, as opposed to void zero. You've got to know your two voids. You've got to know your nothings. I've got two different kinds of nothings. Know what nothing is nothing. Know what nothing is something. But he didn't. He put all that stuff out there. Why did he do it? He's got a reason. He's got a reason. How many people are you going to resurrect, by the way? Just ask. How many people were before the flood? They all died in the flood. How many? Estimates are about 8 billion. How many people are there from the flood to now? Oh, you might make the case for 10, 12 billion. That's a lot of people. What's he got to do? He's going to judge them all. Right? That's a lot of people. Can he do that? Judge all those people? I mean, that's going to take a lot of time. I mean, has he got time for that? Uh, I mean, does he? What if he, what if, what if he raises, uh, what if, you know, the animals are innocent. What if uh, Buckner is correct? And I believe Buckner is. What if he resurrects and restores all the Nefesh Kaya? What if he does it? There's a lot of, a lot of animals. Has he got time for that? Can he do it? Is he big enough? Does he know what he's doing? I mean, come on, he's going to have to, is he gonna, he's got to get all that evidence against all these people. He's a bunch of them he's going to judge. See, the question that Buckner always raised, which is wonderful, if you, if you have a position that God is not going to do this, then your question becomes, ultimately, is he not able to do it? Or does he not want to? Which is like asking, is he not powerful enough? Or is he not good enough? Is that your position? Good luck with that. Okay, we'll stop there. Let's uh, musicians come forward. He intended that there would be no excuse. He says something really cool. By the things that are made and by the power that holds the things together. The power that makes the things exist. The power that makes the things move. That's what Romans said. There's your proof. It's the things that he made. By the way, what are we? We're things. You can prove that he is here and that he is in control and that he is who he is, says he is, because of the things that are, that are made and the things that move the things that are made. Okay? How do things consist or exist? How do they continue to exist? What is that? How is it that you exist? How did you come to existence? Why do you exist now? 
He has to perceive you. He has to think about you. What keeps things in existence? His mind does. He says so. I'm spirit. My mind keeps things. He, who says George Berkeley, by the way. We're back to philosophy, aren't we? I ha- he has to think of us, and he has to think of all things all the time, or what happens to us and the things. Poof, go boom. Okay? How many things are there? Lots of things. And they all what? Exist. How much, how much does that require? By the way, what's nothing? It's a thing. How much nothing is there? Lots and lots of nothing. He has to think about nothing to make nothing exist. Okay, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Let, let's rise for the last song. Be dismissed. That is Romans. That's your introduction, boys and girls and Phoebe's. Okay. See you next week. Page 20. By his wounds.